Hello and welcome to The Real Maxime Podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. The venture fundraising and investing landscape of 2023 was in many respects a period best left in the past. Particularly hard hit was the fintech sector, which experienced a significant downturn. This was exemplified by a stark reduction in deal numbers, plummeting from 6,000 in 2021 to fewer than 4,000 in 2023. Notably, global fintech funding fell sharply, a 50% year-over-year decrease, marking the lowest level since 2017. This downturn has brought many existing companies to the brink, challenging their business models with rising interest rates and valuation declines. Founders are grappling with difficult choices, reevaluating their strategies in a landscape where previous assumptions and market dynamics have shifted dramatically. Despite these daunting recent trends, it's important to recognize the enduring, broader upward trajectory in this sector. Drawing parallels with 2021, a year marked by exceptional circumstances, can be misleading, especially when considering the long-term perspective required to invest in innovation. Our guest today is Tan Vilong, a member of the investment team at Intuit Ventures, the financial software leader's venture capital group responsible for overseeing investment in startups around the world. Through the challenges currently facing the space, her team continues to engage hundreds of startups that are building and innovating. Their corporate venture group is able to close on a full transaction in three to four weeks. It also does not have to raise LP commitments in what is arguably the toughest fundraising environment in the generation. In our conversation, we discuss the skills required to be a VC, the power of the Intuit brand to open doors for sourcing, and the potential to create value post-transaction as a corporate venture. Tanvi recently published her outlook for 2024 and the areas she's particularly interested in deploying into, including vertical SaaS, HR tech, and how the high rates environment is shedding light onto treasury management and fixed income products. And finally, we consider what role, if any, does Gen AI have in fintech to unlock use cases and how incumbents are more likely to have an edge in bringing AI capabilities as an augmentation to their existing offerings. Tanvi has been recognized as one of NYC FinTech's inspiring females. She's a co-founder of VC Unleashed, a global nonprofit aimed at diversifying venture capital through education, resource sharing, and community building, particularly for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Before joining Intuit, she was a consultant at Deloitte and has an MBA from the University of California, Berkeley. An avid reader, Tanvi also holds a degree in English literature and economics from Emory University. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So I grew up between India and the U.S. I actually moved continents three times before I started college. So started off in India in Bangalore and then moved to the Bay Area in the South Bay from first to seventh grade before going back to India for eighth and high school and then coming back to the States for college. I actually went to boarding school for five years when I was in India. So it's always fun to meet other investors and just other people who went to boarding school. I feel like it's a very unique high school experience. And I, let's see, I was kind of a quiet, nerdy kid growing up. I read a lot. So when I was younger, you would always find me with a nose in my book. I would, you know, take books out uh, to like family dinners and just sit in kind of a room and read. And as you might imagine, reading English literature has always been a major passion of mine and and continues to be. I also played a lot of sports growing up. So did soccer, basketball, ad hoc track and stuff like that. So was pretty athletic and really enjoyed the competition and the team element of that. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because from my vantage point, so I get to talk to a ton of really, really interesting folks, as I'm sure you do as well. But in the context of the podcast, you start to see some patterns there. You know, one is you know an upbringing that took people different places, so an ability to you know assimilate and understand nuances and adapt very quickly, and be able to like read your audience, read the room in different cultures. And I'm assuming also like boarding school on some level, like you grew up really fast because you're sort of thrust in that sort of different environment than the typical, you know, household journey of like going to school and go back home at the end of the day. And I also see a mix of, or and it sounds like you're both at times, nerds, athletes, and sometimes both. It's just a common thread and whether it's builders, entrepreneurs, or investors. And I guess it says a lot about, and I was curious to hear your thoughts on 
what you took away from you know these days when you liked doing sports uh, were they predominantly like what were the highlights of that period yeah well i totally agree on everything you just said and yeah the context switching i also moved schools a lot i think that is hugely important and also you know shapes you in a, in a very different way i think when it comes to sports the really big things are just playing to win and you, you don't necessarily need sports to achieve that. And, you know, I, I really only played through high school and a little bit in college. So it wasn't something I pursued really seriously. But I, I think growing up with a mentality of, yeah, you play to win, you show up, you are competitive, you know, you fight for what you want and what you want to achieve, which I think is a, a skill you really need to be successful anywhere and especially in venture. I think the other piece that really I took away from it is is a team sport. So if you don't perform, if you don't show up, you don't even let yourself down. You let everyone down, right? You let your coach down, your teammates down. So I think it really builds like discipline and the mentality of you just have to show up, you know, no matter what's going on for you, you show up and you do your bit. And, and I think that builds a lot of resilience. And I think also just teaches you how to push yourself and I think one of the things I wish I had learned, because I hear as athletes, you know, get more, they focus on it from a more professional angle. They do a really good job of, you know, taking care of themselves, like understanding the science and the methodology behind how their bodies work. And I think that's a really amazing skill that, you know, if I pursued sports more formally, I would have loved to have learned and picked up on. Yeah. And I think it's very topical, though, you know, very different from fintech that we're going to talk about. But I think just as a society, and you're talking about body, I would also bring mind into the fray. Yeah, absolutely. In that I think top athletes are, I'm a big Formula One fan. And one of the things that I remember when Mercedes was winning all championships, so this is the 2016 championship, and Nico Rosberg was able to beat Lewis Hamilton and then retired at the end of that year because he was just exhausted from trying to beat arguably the best driver that we've ever seen. But he hired a almost like 24-7 mental coach to help him deal with the pressure of competing with someone like Lewis Hamilton. And, and I think what really sort of sets top athletes apart, and to close on this, is their ability to really extract the most at the most difficult times. And it's interesting, I see it in our day-to-day -day lives and in our work, right? It's easy for us to, you know, opine and give our opinions, you know, in a podcast or writing notes. But when the going gets tough or you're faced with like difficult investment outcomes or you need to execute or plow through, it's like the ability to stay disciplined, focused in those high intensity moments, I think is what sets apart. And it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard. And top athletes, top professionals are able to do that. So talk to us a little bit about your career progression. So you graduate college. So you went to college in the US, right? That's right. So one of the things I'm interested in is, so you're nerdy, you, you love books, but like, what were the specific topics that you started drilling into in college that you found really interesting or inspiring? Yeah, absolutely. So as you might imagine, I was an English major in college and really studied the entire gambit of things. But the piece I'll highlight is I wrote a senior thesis uh, when I was getting ready to graduate and I focused it on... British women travelers to colonial India. So really looking into colonialism, you know, different countries, talking about women, it, it really tied together all of the things I loved. And it was such a fun thesis for me to write. I still have it. It was over 100 pages. And I talk about that a lot because when I think about my journey as an investor, it really comes back to what I loved about English and analysis. So if I think about my English thesis, I created a thesis statement. I looked at over, you know, 50 different sources to back it up and come to a conclusion. And then I presented and I defended it in front of a panel, which is basically exactly what you do when you're looking at a deal. You have to be bought into the thesis of the startup. You do all of your external research and then you present it at your IC in order to get buy-in. And I think when I saw that connection and I thought about how much fun I had writing my thesis and how intuitive that was, the way I viewed the world, the way I like to think. I kind of knew that was going to be the career path I wanted to go down. 
I didn't actually realize that for a little bit of time, though, because right after undergrad, I started out as a consultant. So I worked in at Deloitte for a while, uh, primarily doing work with their HCM org, so their human capital org. And then after I'd enjoyed that, kind of felt ready for what was next. I went to business school for my MBA. So I went to Berkeley Haas, graduated in 2022. And it was really there that I got my first taste of what it was like to work at a startup what venture even was, because I literally did not know what venture was before business school. I kind of just showed up and had this vague idea of working with a startup, found an early stage fintech called Sequin Financial that is building credit and banking for women. Again, really, really aligned with what I wanted to do and stuff that excited me. So I was really, while I was working with them, I was working with the founder to build out her seed pitch deck. And I was like, this is really cool. I want to do more of this. And that was how I started thinking, okay, maybe venture is what I want to do. Had a chance to work with a couple of other funds, including Concrete Rose Capital, Cowboy Ventures, and then eventually landed in my current role with Intuit Ventures, which has been a blast so far. I mean, that's really interesting path into it. And I want to drill a little bit because at the end of the day, also like venture is obviously it's asset management, it's finance. So it it comes with you know, not only the qualitative side of the assessment, there's a lot of qualitative assessment that goes into it, but it's a numbers game at the end of the day as well. I'm curious as to like, how did you juggle both sides of building sort of your core financial expertise and your ability to underwrite deals, understand the mechanics of of a financial transaction and what the investment life cycle is or down to like how a fund actually works and all these things. I'm curious, like, when did you start really getting acquainted with those concepts? Absolutely. So actually, when I was in college, I interned with asset management companies. So I have always had an interest in investing in financial transactions. It is interesting to talk to other people who get into venture because a lot of people will talk about working with founders, scaling companies, and a lot of those aspects of the job. And those things to me are, of course, really, really important. But I think to do venture, you have to just fundamentally enjoy investments and enjoy investing. Because to your point, you're working with those founders, you're, you're doing all that, but you're also building a diversified portfolio, whether you think about it in like the types of founders you want to back or the industries you look at or what have you. And of course, you know, venture funds are structured very differently. I don't think that's everyone's thesis or mentality around the job, but that's definitely how I think about it. And you're right. I mean, the finances are, are certainly a big part of the equation. I think going to business school and just getting exposure to those things were really helpful to me. I think I I always had enough of a baseline to sort of get the basic mechanics of the finance portion of it. I think what I have really spent time focusing on is just honing those skills and getting smart about it. And I think even in my current role where we look at series A to C startups, the startups here still don't have all that much financial data. And certainly there's a lot of nuance and technicality that goes into the building the models, but I've learned that piece is relatively, you just have to pick up on it, learn and practice the art of the modeling and the art of those transactions in terms of what assumptions you make and and how you decide to build a model are also equally important parts. So I think it's a constant balance and folks kind of need to develop both sides of it when it comes to the financial aspect. Makes sense. And in that sense, I think venture, especially at the stages that you alluded to, you know, certainly falls into that category where, at least from their historical data standpoint, and I fall as an investor, I fall into the camp of like wanting a little bit more data than not. But it's it's hard because you're at a stage where, you know, things haven't really materialized. I think we're having a somewhat quantitative bent in one's analysis is to ensure that the foundations of the unit economics are sound, right? That Absolutely. And I think the consulting background obviously is helpful. And one of the things that I think in the consulting profession is done well, and I sort of lament also that founders have lost that a little bit over time. And I'm kind of ancient, so I've seen what used to be like, you had to write a 50-page business plan literally to get funded 20 years ago. And now no one would ever think about reading a 50-page business plan. But in between, there's a happy medium where you would take the time, even if it's a completely theoretical exercise, to say the typical like MBA 
management consulting exercise, like how many gas stations in a country, like just to try to understand like how do your assumptions work and how do you scale a model, right? Because so much of early stage investing really is it you will never like the variance on your forecast of like what the obtainable serviceable market is is very 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 wide it's almost impossible to predict exactly what's going to happen but what you want is to make sure that if it does play out well that the outcome you're going to capture and i'm talking purely from a venture so like when you need a venture scale outcome that it has the potential to scale like you may be completely off and that's part of the game but at least have assumptions that actually scale and that there is a reasonable chance that it might actually follow that path. And so again, those are like on some level theoretical projection exercises that are rooted in quantitative science in some respect. So you joined a corporate venture arm and that's not necessarily the typical path of going in interning with uh, some GPs and going the traditional fund route. So I'm curious as to how did you get acquainted with that specific field of venture and what was your entry point there? So when I was recruiting for venture, I cast a pretty wide net. And the big things for me were just, do I enjoy the way this fund invests and would I enjoy the companies I would spend my time with? And then the second piece is, do I like the team and are these folks I could work with? So when the role at Intuit came up, I was really excited because Intuit was basically a fintech startup that is now a publicly traded company. So I knew that I would get a chance to work with fintech companies and I would be able to spend time in the industry that I cared about. And I love my team. They were fantastic during the interview process. And I laughed to myself. I feel like recruiting for venture was kind of like dating. But when you meet the team that's right for you, you kind of, you know, when you know. So I think all of that stuff really led me to the role here and is my first experience in corporate venture. And I think corporate venture gets a bit of a bad name. There's a lot of nuance and, and interesting stuff that happens here. And I'm happy to yeah, share more about what the corporate venture model looks like and how things look different across other companies. But I think the biggest thing I realized is people put all corporate venture funds into one bucket and kind of treat them the same. But there is a ton of nuance in terms of how these funds invest, the speed at which they invest, what they can do for you, and kind of like the signaling it provides to the broader market. Yeah. And I think there's a reason, I think, for the fact that people tend to lump it uh, very simplistically, right? Because say, in as much as it's really part of an organization, first of all, it's going to come with somewhat more fiduciary responsibility to share, especially if it's a publicly traded company, the processes that you need to enforce to justify decisions are going to be much more stringent. So one of the things that is commonly referred to is the fact that those venture arms are probably not as nimble as, let's say, an emerging GP or an established GP, just because the decision-making process is a little bit different. But they do come with, I think, a lot more rigor, right? Because oftentimes, and I don't know if that's exactly how you guys are set up, but it fits within corporate development and M&A as well. So there's a lot of sort of that later stage, you know, sort of oversight and looking at things in a very disciplined manner, especially when it comes to the financial aspects again. So whereas on one hand, it slows things down if you're trying to get into a round and you need to move quickly. And sometimes you do, especially in a fast moving market. On the other hand, I think it comes with, I think, a little bit more discipline. Are you guys set up as part of an overall corporate development function or is it a separate group and you're you're still investing corporate balance sheet? Yeah, so we we are within the corporate strategy and development group at Intuit. Uh, we're a completely separate team from our corp dev and strategy team. So we make our investing decisions separately and and we invest off the balance sheet so we don't raise external capital, which in this environment has been nice. I think to your point around the speed, that's pretty fair, but I- I would just say you're well within your rights as a founder to try and push your CVC that you're talking to to see what they can do. I'll say from an Intuit perspective, we have done full diligence and alignment approval you know, within three to four weeks. So when there's real momentum and interest and you know the stars kind of line up, we can definitely move pretty fast. But again, this kind of depends on how your CVC arm is structured and 
a lot of folks who will require a partnership or commercial agreement in place prior to an investment obviously are not able to move as fast. And that's not necessarily the case for us, but, but you know, it, it is nice that we can move pretty quickly that way. Yeah, no, for sure. And sometimes there's other things happening within the organization that are outside of your control. I can think of when you looked at what happened with Figma and Adobe, like I think that entire group was probably challenged to be able to do much else than wait and see for that, you know, enormous deal to go through. So these are things that are really outside of, I think, the venture group's control. But I think it's impressive that you guys are able to turn around in, in three to four weeks, quite frankly, because that would fit neatly into the ability to underwrite and be competitive. Do you tend to lead deals or you're almost exclusively following and as a strategic investor? Yeah, we don't lead. So we we don't set terms and we'll, we'll follow the leads terms typically. Got it. So what is your like approach to sourcing? If we talk about like, how do you think about the funnel? Again, I'd love to hear your thoughts on like the qualitative versus the quantitative aspects. There's a lot of talks around systematic sourcing and, and building the right quantitative infrastructure to be able to do that. I was wondering how you guys think about it. Yeah. So our sourcing, and I'll talk to, I'll speak to my sourcing specifically. It's not quite as systematic as, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll become. It ends up being quite network driven given the stage we invest in, which is mid to later stage. A ton of our deal flow comes from early stage VCs. So it's about setting up the right touch points, making sure I'm talking to the right funds and building relationships with those early stage founders, even before they're ready to raise, just to make sure we're top of mind when the round comes up. And something I'm still working on is is how to source growth stage founders. (laughs) When I worked with early stage VCs, it was relatively easy to go to events and kind of just be out in the ecosystem and meet pre-seed seed founders who are looking to raise. But understandably, as the startups get older, the founders are not spending their time at these types of events. So that has been something I'm continually iterating on. But I would say majority of the sourcing is primarily network-based. And there is some proactive outbound, but I've found that hasn't been quite as useful or productive of a discussion as as it has been from getting high quality leads from folks I trust. Do you feel, and was it part of your motivation as well, that being within a platform that's obviously a a huge category leader in in multiple areas, that it's helpful from an inbound perspective? Do you also feel like it enhances your credibility despite still being fairly early in your career as an investor where it's a door opener or a conversation opener, having a name behind? It absolutely is. And that is one of the really nice things about Working at a corporate venture fund, especially one with a brand like Intuits, and to your point, with for someone who's newer in their career, I think it's given me so much access and kind of just put some weight behind the ask or the approach where we do a good amount of just general discussion, partnerships, or like biz dev escort where we share with founders what a partnership could look like. We try to get them connected if we think it's a good fit. So a lot of founders, even if they're not raising, are super open to at least talking because they want to hear more about it or they want to see how we can help them get connected to the business. And that's absolutely been a door opener, which is fantastic. And that's kind of the other nice thing about CBC, which I've enjoyed, is you really have this potential to create business value, even if it's not through a direct investment. Obviously, my preference when a founder comes to me is I want to talk to them about investments because at the end of the day, that's my number one job. But if they're not a good fit from an investment perspective, but there's interest from the business for partnership, I get to facilitate that. And that's real value on on both sides. So it's kind of nice to also have that angle to the role. Makes sense. Makes sense. And so back to your point about finding attractive growth opportunities, it's obviously, and as the pyramid really narrows, right? And you get to, because obviously in the growth game, you're going to want to pick the best and brightest, right? And to your point, founders and their management team, because at that stage, they've already started building like an executive team and they're heads down, they're flying away, they, they're building this business and that's usually on a very fast growth trajectory. So you talked about really being very networked at the early stage VCs. Do you maintain a set of key relationships on the growth equity side? So I'm thinking about the Santanas of the world to participate in what they look at and sort of piggyback on their own sourcing mechanics. Yeah, absolutely. I 
I would say that's an area like I would personally probably need to work on, but there's a huge alignment there from a stage perspective as well. And I would say our sweet spot is typically like a late series A or like a series B. So as and when that's in scope for a growth equity firm, it's definitely a good relationship for us to pursue. Yep. So if you think about differentiation, right? So we talked about sourcing because a lot of the job is really it's sourcing, it's origination, and it's underwriting. So we talked about this on the sourcing side. Let's like dive a little bit into like your where you see your due diligence approach. Sounds like you're able to execute pretty fast and piggyback on pretty skilled group of people to do that. And so to avoid leaving any blind spots. So how differentiated is your approach, do you think, versus other places out there? I would say we look at what you'd expect most VCs to look at from a diligence perspective, right? We look at the market, the customer problem, the product differentiation, financials, the growth, the competition. I would say some of the pieces that we're able to do a little differently is is loop in our in-house product folks and experts to help QA and see how unique the tech really is. And I think as a team, we do maintain a good amount of rigor and discipline and are particularly intentional, you know, when we're building out our forecasts to make sure they're bottoms up and super kind of as relevant and accurate as we can make them. But I would say from a diligence perspective, we look at most of the stuff you'd expect and I don't know that there's anything particularly differentiated beyond kind of the in-house expertise we lean on. Have you built some ties internally? Because one would think at a corporate venture, there's a lot, obviously, in the venture job, like you're out there, you're networking, building connectivity and your own social graph. What about internally within the organization to not only like source ideas or understand from experts within the different business units, how they look at a specific deal or how they would look at a specific deal based on their own expertise? Yes, we have a really strong network of folks that we talk to within Intuit. I'll just say that we are really careful and intentional with what information we share with them. We're not sending pitch decks or anything internally. We share the public information that's there to get their feedback into our diligence. And that's, make sure that's clear, but we absolutely maintain strong relationships with folks internally. It's great to just understand what different business units are working on. So then when we see a startup that's potentially relevant, we can flag and get back to them and make intros as is useful. Yeah. And for you in particular, when you look at deals, how important is it for you to deeply understand the core technology of what you look at? Or do you feel like you have enough experts that you can tap into to help augment your ability to look at a deal? Because I look at when I talk to, for example, like my crypto VC friends, it's obviously very technical and it actually tends to lean the other side where there's, I think, in my opinion, too much of a focus on the engineering, on the product itself. And sometimes at the expense of like thinking about, well, what's the commercialization path? How do you think it's structurally within the industry and the role that it's going to play within a specific solution set? But in your seat, like, do you think you have enough backing in terms of understanding technology? Or have you found yourself like literally given night, like just plowing away at like reading medium articles and like white papers and like drilling deep down into the technology itself? I would say for majority of the deals we look at, given they're largely fintech commerce, vertical SaaS, or some type of enabling technology that's relevant to Intuit, we have either folks we can tap or a baseline understanding of how the tech works for from a diligence perspective. I also think we're getting to a point in fintech and, and just maybe more broadly as well, where the way I think about it is some com- some startups have a really, really unique product advantage where they have built something no one else can do. In some startups, the product's pretty commoditized, but they have a really unique defensible go-to-market where their distribution is just blowing their competitor out of the water. And I think both of those are compelling. It just depends which focus area, which which space, et cetera, you're, you're working in. We don't do a ton of super deep crypto. So I haven't come across like a really nuanced tech that that I don't completely understand. 
but would say that in addition to all of the deep dives, you know, it's again, a network based diligence process where we talk to the lead, we talk to other folks we know in the space to just get their perspective as well. And it's always really nice to get some customer calls or even notes from the call to understand like, how did they QA and diligence and why did they pick this particular startup? Because oftentimes we'll hear nuances about the product that didn't come up in, in our diligence calls with the founders, or we'll realize, hey, this particular feature is actually compelling, right? Whereas we maybe wrote it off or vice versa. Like we thought it was a super compelling hook, but the customer actually, that's not why they're picking the product. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And yeah, I would say also, as you look at Ultimately, and this, again, to my point earlier, gets lost in the process is this, and I think it was largely a function of the last decade plus of quantitative easing and easy money where capital was abundant and allowed funding of R&D really for the sake of R&D, right? So anyone would come in and it was the lore and the glory of the hacker, um, you know, this whiz computer engineer can come in and crack a problem and a business would follow, right? And the reality is, I think, with cost of capital normalizing, actually not being excessive, it's just normalizing, the discipline of going back to understanding at first, it needs to be a business. And the technology is the enabler of the business. And going back to what I think is a more, I mean, at least in business, unless you're doing R&D, you know, as an institution, as a university or so on and so forth, the research aspect Research is not a, a business per se. Business needs to generate revenues and spend less than it's making and generate cash flow. So I think it's entirely possible, especially if you have a good network, to not necessarily be the technical expert. It helps to avoid sort of landmines and making sure that whoever's sitting across from you is might be not necessarily giving you the whole picture, but also understanding like what is the optionality built in technology that you're investing in, right? I also like to think a lot about, especially in the early days, how do you actually create technical equity? You know, people refer to it as technical debt, which is the weight of the the past choices in architecture and that weigh on current decisions because it needs to be taken into account if you're trying to do anything new. So, you know, one of the things that I like to look at is really making sure that the founders, as they're building, Think about their architecture in ways that create more optionality down the road. In other words, inevitably, they're going to need to pivot or adapt, right? They can be mini pivots, they could be large pivots, but having an architectural mindset to achieve that, I think, is very important. So it's more like understanding how the founders think about it than necessarily like having to go and like doing a code review per se. I think it's important to assess that aspect. So, which brings me to we alluded to it at the beginning of the conversation, a big part of what you do is underwrite teams. And as you were alluding to, there's not a a ton of data, or at least it's not the traditional public company investing data. So what do you look for in a team? And how do you assess? And what are like your selection criteria? Like when you, you come into from the first interaction that you have, be it at an event or in a meeting at your office or at the founder's office, how do you think about building a process around assessing, is this individual founder or this team going to be able to deliver on what they're selling us? Absolutely. So to your point, team is hugely important. I think the most basic thing, and this is going to sound so simple, but it's just a vibe check. Like I, whether it's on Zoom or in person, I've met founders who I've heard amazing things about from other people. And I just, the vibe check is off. And I want to say 80 to 90% of the time I have been proven right (laughs) that there was like something a little off happening or could have happened. So I think just like paying attention to like, what is the voice in the back of your head telling you if something comes up, it's like a big piece that I have learned works well. And so I think just starting there and then looking at the more like the things on paper, like what have they done in the past? how is that relevant here? And like, what gives them an unfair advantage to be able to scale in this particular market? I think people talk about founder startup, founder market fit, there we go, founder market fit a lot. And and I kind of struggle with that, where I think we have seen through our investments, founders who have kind of 
come into a space with complete like no prior background in it, but are are doing really well. So I, I think it's kind of just balancing what we think this founder needs to have on paper with what is their actual demonstrated growth. And if they're posting fantastic growth numbers, they have demonstrated a strong ability to hire a great team. I think that speaks volumes. So, you know, as a part of our diligence, we obviously are also looking at who are their C-suite and like, how do we feel about them? And then lastly, we also really care about the diversity of the teams. We, I personally, and my team believes that diverse teams perform better. And we look for at least a woman, a person of color reporting up to one of the co-founders. And if we don't see that, it's just a conversation with the founder to understand like, hey, how do you think about building your team? And like, what are your thoughts around the culture of the team? Because those pieces are also really important. There's a lot to unpack here. And it's so much at the core of like the investment decision making to what we're saying earlier about underwriting the team. So a few things. One is 65% of startups actually fail due to founder conflict, right? So Oh, wow. I didn't realize the number was that high. It's a pretty high and it actually gets worse when the going gets tough, right? And I can attest to having and still being in business with my business partner and I founded a company together a while back. So we've gone through hell and back together and I could see how we've been able to ebb and flow throughout that. And a lot of it also has to do with that if you actually run our psychometrics test, which I'm a big fan of, and whenever I can, I like to look and run them. And it takes literally 15, 20 minutes for founders to do that. Not that it's going to guarantee the outcome, but you can very quickly see how non-overlapping the skill sets are, right? And so for a founding team, it's very important that they cover as much ground as possible. So in other words, if you have two founders who are like very similar in their psychometrics, it's usually going to lead to conflict. And it's usually going to lead to lack of complementarity that allows you to balance out just like a portfolio of assets. You want stocks, you want bonds. It's very important to take that into account at the early stage. And oftentimes it gets overlooked. And as things are becoming, again, a little bit harder than they were, you're seeing in a lot of teams kind of breaking up and losing that. And oftentimes, as much as you can renegotiate and so on and so forth, there's a lot of dead weight lost there in the equity that's still stuck, even if it hasn't fully vested. So it creates like a lot of awkward conversations and a lot of economic dead weight that cannot necessarily be reversed. And, you know, I'd say in terms of the diversity point that you're making, I think it's, there's no question that having an environment that fosters an ability to raise different viewpoints to come at it from different perspectives, which inevitably comes from the inherent diversity of a team, I think is critical, right? Because the worst thing that can happen is you sort of get stuck in that echo chamber and it can work really well for a bit of time, but it doesn't make the team resilient to the different difficulties that will inevitably crop up along the way. So I think diversity, caveat that by saying that, in my opinion, at least, like it needs to be very sort of competence-driven in other words, like you should always thrive to put the best people in the seats that you're trying to fill. And I do believe that inevitably, if you actually follow that, your team will be diverse, right? Because if it's harder to find the best performers, if you don't cast a wide net in your team, quite frankly. So all in on, on diversity, I think it's, it's very important. And again, back to having the ability, we talked about it at the beginning of the conversation, like you lived, you grew up around the world, you went to school in different environments. That's in and of itself, like that's an entirely diverse background, right? So inevitably in your career, like you're going to be more adapted to the things that are going to get thrown your way than if someone didn't have that exposure. Very, very cool. Well, I think the other piece that is also helpful is just like your customers, whether they're businesses or individuals, are also of a varied background. So when you think about the team, the product team, the biz dev team, like all of the folks on your team, like actually genuinely creating the best product you can that serves and resonates with the most amount of customers, even from that angle, it's in your interest to create a diverse team from a demographics perspective 
as well as the background perspective. And I, I run a nonprofit called VC Unleashed that focuses on racial representation within venture. So this is a space and an area I could talk for days about. That's awesome. No, it's important. And I think, especially from where you sit and we all sit as investors, it's very important that we use capital to actually create those diverse outcomes ultimately, that we stop getting caught up in funneling funds always to the same schools and the same places because inevitably you'll create the same outcomes, right? And we're from an investment standpoint, you're just going to be missing out on alpha at the end of the day. It's really the, the, the reality of that. Just to close on uh, more of the process and the business itself, what's your like post-investment involvement? Like, How involved are you guys? I'm assuming you don't take a board seat. You take observer seats. How do you per- like participate in value creation? And it could be in good times. It means like making introductions to customers and business development help, but also in bad times. And we're seeing a lot of companies have to pivot and adjust right now. Like what, what's the, your level of involvement? So we take select board observer seats where it makes sense. But yes, in, in general, we're not always sitting on boards. Post-investment, you know, we aim to be any other value-add investor, whether it's, you know, making introductions for future raises down the road, whether it's trying to help source incredible candidates to fill their open roles, as well as supporting startups as they're working to get connected internally. So a big value add is obviously connecting them within Intuit, keeping them top of mind for any programs that we may run with startups and just putting them in front of the right people and building connections there. But yeah, beyond that, I would say most of what you typically expect VCs support in with primarily with regards to recruiting, fundraising, and just general coaching as and when things come up. That's awesome. So we're getting to the exciting part of hearing you talk a little bit more about the market. I know you've written quite a bit at this time of the year as as you do, and you're comparing how you were looking at things going into 2023, which from various aspects was a bizarre year, right? I mean, there It really was. (laughs) People went into 2023 expecting the world to collapse after a difficult reset with the Fed-induced duration shock. And fintech in particular, and tech broadly, right, is very, very interest rate sensitive. So there was just an overall reset first, like lick your wounds first, and then start thinking about, okay, well, how do we adapt? But in the meantime, it was a difficult period, right? Adjustments are definitely not in the comfort zone. They require a lot of changes. And, and we're still in many ways, like going through this transition, right? So first of all, let's talk about the way you look and people look at the space differently. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. And I think you were very eloquent the way you wrote about it. Discuss the wide varieties and nuances of like business models, right? That exist in the space. Obviously, what's top of mind is capital intensive businesses like neo lenders, neo insurance have struggled, right? In this environment. And you talk about how that's going to create new opportunities. You talk a lot about your interest and excitement around vertical SaaS and the ability to throw additional financial primitives as addition to those models. So I'm super excited to hear your thoughts as to how things kind of panned out in 2023 and how you're looking at them moving forward. Yeah, so 2023 was certainly an interesting year. I think going into last year, it was abundantly clear to me that consumer fintech was going to be incredibly hard. And really, the focus was going to be B2B fintech, which was not that out there of a a statement, but ended up definitely being correct. And I think 2023 was interesting where you really saw public consumer fintechs seesawing the entire year. I think they're relatively doing better now than they were in the beginning of the year. But I think 2023 almost felt like this holding pattern, in my opinion, where I was like, things are kind of bad, but they're not terrible. They're kind of good, but they're not amazing. And, And I think it's going to be really interesting to see if and when like these super highly valued B2B fintechs go public, like Plaid, Stripe, Deal. I think we're really going to see what the future of fintech looks like after that, because it's kind of hard to write off an entire category when a big part of the value is still private, right? So coming into this year, 
I think lending is still an interesting area. Like the cost of capital has been super high, but the Fed is likely to cut rates this year. And lending businesses have definitely evolved and gotten creative with how they price and and what types of products they create. So we've seen lending businesses, you know, incorporate SaaS components to it to drive monthly revenue. We've seen them change their underwriting models into a way that is taking into account what's been happening in the market. And we're seeing them either create like vertical specific solutions or like really like hone in on a particular area where they can get more conversion and more business. So it's been interesting to see the different ways in which founders have, have addressed the higher interest rate. And we will see, you know, what else they're able to do this year. I, I think there's obviously a bit of a lag after the interest rates shift to actually see how startups perform as a result. Outside of that, vertical SaaS is definitely an area I am really excited about for the year. And just broadly going forward, I think with embedded fintech being where it is, it's kind of never been easier to incorporate that as a part of your workflow. And we've had some early success stories in vertical SaaS, like a toast where they were able to go public and address this huge decentralized market. And so we're excited about other areas within vertical SaaS where that's possible. And yeah, I'm happy to dive into more of what I like or what I see in vertical SaaS because I have a lot of thoughts there. But another area I am really excited about is this HR tech, fintech crossover. I have no idea what to really call it, but I think we've seen a few spaces like earned wage access, employment, employer of record, where it's really playing in this crossover where there's there's a fintech component to it, there's an HR tech component to it, there's payroll, there's benefits, there's compliance, all of these really like hard, nuanced, kind of boring things that no one has ever really rethought. But all of these things are just so integral to you as an employee and your performance as a business. So innovations there are also really interesting and exciting to me. And I think with the success of a few of these spaces like earned wage access, employer of record, there is the ground for a lot more innovations to come down the road. Yeah, no, I I agree. And it's music to my ears. I mean, I think the intersection, as you've outlined here, HR tech and fintech, because they're so like, we think of it as really this, this whole notion of fintech adjacent, right? It's like you have a core. And so you can think about like hardcore capital markets tech and on Wall Street and order and execution management systems and and things like that. But there's a whole universe that's like at the periphery where you're essentially always touching. Like you think about HR, it's tied to how people get paid. It's tied to how potentially people will, will borrow, take out loans. It's tied to benefits. And so it's inherently very, very much dovetailed with the personal finance world in some respect, right? And there's huge efficiencies also on the corporate side to be gained from shifting over from these more legacy workflows to modernizing it, you know, down to also like how it ties into like retirement systems and management. And over the last decade, we've seen that evolve, but by and large, it's still very clunky, right? So there's a ton of space there to streamline, to create a better experience for users and also their administrators. I think another area that you talked about uh, was, and it ties into something that I always think about. It's like, it's hard to untether fintech from what's happening in the macro environment, right? And you've talked about lending and how it's been impacted, but there's been a lot of interest around fixed income, right? And treasury management, both on the retail side, as well as the corporate side. That The challenge there is, it's very much a macro bet, because if we end up 24 months and back to like a zero rate environment, you know, I can think about like, moment, open yield, like companies that are really trying to bring retail, you know, investing into bonds, right? Saying, okay, yields are higher now, like maybe retail is going to start trading or accessing bonds the way they access stocks. And as a former corporate bond hedge fund manager, like it's a delicate value proposition, right? To stretch into saying the average person out there is going to start, even if you made the whole experience like seamless, are they really going to start buying and selling bonds? 
I think that's an open question. But was wanting to hear your thoughts on how you think the macro environment is going to drive interest into those fixed income and treasury management areas. That's a great question. And one I definitely think about with like Robinhood and consumer fintechs that enabled you to trade stocks. It is just, I mean, it's wild to me to think how easy it is when I think back to my first brokerage account. None of my friends, this was in college, none of my friends invested, like no one knew what I was talking about. I had to go in person, get forms signed in order to open it and then funding it, all of that. And I had to pay a $5 fee per stock transaction, which still cracks me up to think about it now. And I think this that bonds are in a very similar place where they're so inaccessible that people aren't incentivized to learn about it. They're not paying attention to it. And I think a lot of consumers just don't know that they can do it. And I think it was a very similar story with stocks too, where consumers just didn't know. And when you had this super easy way to interact and engage with it, it just drove a bunch of retail investing, right? And retail investors. So I think there is a world in which that's the same story for fixed income, where perhaps the problem today is just that no one has access to it. Ergo, there's not interest or or usage and they just need a tool in order to build that, which is interesting. Like to your point, I it's hard to say which way it'll go. I think if I just think about myself, if I had access to buy and trade bonds, I totally would. I believe really strongly in a diversified portfolio. I think that you reach a time when you're like, okay, all my money just can't be in stocks because it's riskier. And frankly, the, the tax implications of selling all our stocks are are not great. And so there is definitely more options from a fixed income perspective. I do think that the fintech revolution in like equities, fixed income kind of hasn't hasn't kept pace with fixed income. Like it's all been equities trading. Even if you think about embedded solutions like Alpaca and DriveWell, like DriveWell's just recently announced their fixed income offering. It just hasn't been an option. So I definitely think this past year has shed light on treasury management and fixed income in a way that we haven't had in a while. And I think that'll continue this year. And I, I really think it'll be a combination of both that consumers will eventually go towards. And if you're providing embedded brokerage, it I think it'll continue to be, it'll kind of become a combination of equities and fixed income that makes one of these embedded players successful. Because as the economy kind of cycles, you have a product to address both. Yeah. And I think, you know, barring, I think a huge deflationary shock, I think we're probably, and that's a personal opinion, probably in, in a higher rates for longer as modeled through this adjustment period. So I think you could see like even the baseline savings primitive, like the ability to store money somewhere and have features and generate yield and things like that. It's funny, like in the zero rate environment, crypto was providing an outlet for that, right? People would go into crypto and harvest yields, some of those yields not necessarily being economically driven, but being sort of a flywheel to attract uh, folks onto ecosystems. But nevertheless, people were attracted by those higher yields. So definitely an area to watch. Let's talk about AI a little bit. What are your thoughts about AI when it comes to fintech? And I think the, the natural intuition is to think consumer, but there's a ton of applications for it in the B2B space. So it's curious to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, you know, hard to believe it's been an entire podcast and we haven't brought up AI yet. But I think I'm still struggling with what is the true knockout use case of, I guess, generative AI within fintech. I think AI has always been there in fintech, at least for the past few years. And there's no question that AI has a really strong use case in fintech either from an automation perspective, from like a better underwriting perspective, you name it. I think generative AI is something I'm a little TBD on with fintech. I think there are a couple of really interesting use cases that I'm excited to see play out. Number one is certainly from a consumer perspective and from a financial advice perspective. So generative AI in that like, I tell the AI what I like to invest in, what my savings goals are, spits out a saving a whole financial plan even does it for me or on the flip side it's helping advisors by creating that first draft for them that they then modify before sharing with their client so i think that could be interesting i think just 
I don't know what consumers are going to think about taking advice from AI-generated product, but there is one use case there, which is interesting to me. Wouldn't say it's a knockout, but looking to learn more uh, from startups building there. I think the other piece where it's interesting is this AI co-pilot that a lot of startups are building, which is more of the B2B lens, as you mentioned. So looking at financial data, you know, accounting, banks, any loans you might have and creating real-time forecasts or just real-time insights into your current financial state, the goal of creating better decisions, moving quicker, all of that. I think that could be really, really interesting. I think, you know, incumbents are going to play a big role here. So Intuit launched our, we announced our Intuit Assist product, which is a co-pilot within QuickBooks. So really, when I see these types of products, my question is always, well, what are the insights you're going to give that an Intuit Assist or like a bank-based product or an accounting-based product, like what QuickBooks has that we can't provide? And it's interesting because is there a a magic sauce in, in the data you are able to pull as a startup that like, you know, QuickBooks doesn't have access to that is going to drive businesses to your specific product? Are businesses going to want to see this in your product versus their accounting software or in their bank. Like, I think there's a few pieces there that we need to tease out, but that could be another really interesting use case for generative AI specifically. I think beyond that, the the general chatter that I've been seeing that I agree with is also just generative AI as enabling technology that reduces customer service cost, creates efficiencies on the back end that can really benefit fintech. But I don't know that I see that as, as a fintech specific application of generative AI as much as just a localized version of an AI that could, of generative AI that could be applied across the board, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. And to me, it's, it falls into the same category. And it will sort of close on this is the same way that people were obsessed with the cloud in 2010s. And, and eventually it just makes its way into, and you stop thinking about it. It's abstracted. It's part of the infrastructure, right? No one thinks about the cloud anymore. It's just par for the course. Like you, we talked at length about your views on vertical SaaS, like all of it being supported by the cloud. Same thing with crypto rails. Ultimately, it has to be abstracted away as like essentially a tidal wave change in the background upon which applications and services are being built. Same thing with AI. I think on some respect, you're already seeing it, I wouldn't say like being commoditized, but just making its way into like now, like you had all these initial vendors that were note takers in meetings and now like all the main conference calls like Zoom, like are shipping now with feature of the sort. And everyone eventually is going to get to the same level of quality there. So there won't be much differentiation. So if you're out there and you're like you're trying to launch yet another note taker, it's going to be very challenging to stand out, right? So I think of it as more of like an augmentation technology and a piece of the infrastructure, but to your point, not necessarily like a fintech specific application in itself. I think it definitely on the back end, like it's allowing you to tap into unstructured data sets and really play a part in how data pipelines are being processed. Data is is being taken from unstructured to structured. There's interesting players in the space also looking at transactional data and turning them into like human or computer structured readable format, which is hugely important for underwriting things like credit or insurance or other aspects, like anything that allows you to take data that's unstructured or not really legible or very unstructured in the way it's being processed. Tons of application there where you'll have very unsexy backend type businesses and I'm thinking entropy here comes to mind in terms of their ability to process like payment transaction data. But I don't see, to your point, personally, again, an actual use case. And I may, my may be wrong. To me, it's all about augmentation and it's really going to change our lives. I also you know, think it's people are fearful of its impact on employment. I actually think AI is going to create jobs. I think AI will allow folks that are not in a position to become coders or build digital products to be enabled to do so by prompting AI to do so, right? So suddenly you're going to have opened the gates to folks being able to perform tasks through the AI augmentation that they weren't able to do before 
and probably earn higher wages that way. So that I think it's going to be very, very beneficial. But again, mostly as an infrastructure, in the case of fintech, full agreement with you on that. It's been super cool to chat with you on all these topics. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. Love hearing about your background and how you got started on Intuit. And it sounds like you have a great plan and vision for this year, but certainly the years to come. And I'll say I'm biased, but I tend to agree with a lot of things you put out there in terms of your outlook. So I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today and looking forward to staying in touch and seeing what you're investing in over the next year. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, it was a great conversation. Enjoyed being on and and thanks so much. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent, not investment advice.